I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theatre Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Jenna Puff Gray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theatre Company. And this is Theatre Forward, a monthly conversation about theatre from a local, regional and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insights into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theatre in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 105 of Theater Forward. That's a great this number. Month, it is. It is a great <laughs> number. Um, and this month, we are going to be talking about the crucial period in a new play's life after its world premiere and how it can be especially challenging for playwrights. And I must say, we are absolutely thrilled to have with us for this conversation the playwright Samuel D. Hunter. Sam is an accomplished writer with a vast list of plays to his credit, including A Bright New Boise. The Whale, which you might know was released as a film in 2022, Lewiston and Clarkston, which were produced by Forward in 2021, Greater Clements, and most recently, A Case for the Existence of God, which was named by the New York Times as one of the best theatrical experiences of 2022. Sam is a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant, a resident playwright of New York Signature Theater, and he serves on the board of directors for the Dramatists Guild. Welcome, Sam. Hello. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. It is um, such a pleasure to see you again. And I'm so glad you could join us for this conversation because we think this is a really important aspect of the life cycle of new dramatic work in the country. And I don't think folks think about it that much or know about it to think about it that much. Um, and so it's something we, we, we deal with a lot here at Forward, but I, I'd love to just sort of start out with your perspective on this, on this topic and what it means for playwrights um, to, to try to get their work past a world premiere and onto a, a longer life on stage. Yeah, it's really tricky. I mean, <clears throat> kind of made trickier by the fact that like uh, in this country, our rehearsal processes are getting just shorter and shorter. At least it feels that way to me. I mean, like mm -hmm. I, like I was just, there's a, a production of the case for the existence of God that's going on in Holland right now. And I was zooming with them and they're doing like eight weeks of rehearsal. You know, oh, a 90 minute curious. two character play. I mean, it's just, you know, and like, and you hear stories of like doing Shakespeare over there where they rehearsed for like a year. And so like, I think how that impacts the playwright is like a lot of the times, like we don't know exactly how the play operates until we're seeing it on its feed. Sometimes you don't even know entirely how it operates until you're in like a technical rehearsal or something like that. And so sometimes there's just not the space to do the sort of dramaturgical work that you need to do. I mean, I'll give you a very concrete example. Like I, I wrote this play called The Great Wilderness that was in Seattle Rep in 2014, I want to say. And, um, it, and and it was a lovely production. It was directed by Braden Abraham, who is now at the uh, Writer's Theater in Chicago, I believe. Um, and I had a great time, but it, it's a bear. It's a big play for me. Uh, the ideas are very big. There's a lot of characters. Um, and I didn't really crack it. But then when I had a second production at Williamstown the following summer, I really had the space to like figure it out. Uh, and, and that, I, and I, and I didn't make massive changes, but I just kind of like changed some of the character logic and, and, um, you know, flip some scenes and then all of a sudden like the play worked so much better. Um, and it's also made complicated by the fact that, you know, like, uh, when that play was at Seattle rep, Charles Isherwood from the New York times, then of the New York times flew into Seattle, panned it <laughs> and effectively like, you know, ruined its future life. You know what I mean? And, um, it never came to New York. Uh, and, uh, so it's, you know, but, but he saw like an earlier iteration, do you know what I mean? He, he essentially saw like what felt like to me as an out of town tryout. 
Um, that play has gotten produced here and there. And I was very lucky to get that, that production at Williamstown. It was Jenny Gersten, wonderful Jenny Gersten, who programmed it. And she didn't care what the New York Times said. She just liked the play and wanted to do it. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard because I, I, sometimes I figure out plays in the first production, but often it takes a couple, you know, like you just need to kind of like sit with it in audiences and kind of understand how it operates and, and, and then kind of get another crack at it, you know? Um, but sometimes that second production is just so elusive, especially if like an institution like the New York times has already weighed in on it. It, it's kind of got, it's like, you know, the, like, like piercing the ear of a cattle with a tag, like, like you can't really, uh, or at least it feels that way. I should say, like, it was interesting. I saw this clip the other day, I forget where, but it was uh, David Hyde Pierce talking about the original production of Christopher Durang's Beyond Therapy. Mm. And I think of that as like one of Chris's like central plays, like part of like, like one of his most important works. But, but David, uh, David Hyde Pierce was talking about how it was panned in the times by Frank Rich. And I looked it up and it was a total pan and, mm-hmm. and it's funny. And that, and that play has since been revived and redone and it, and it is still sort of one of Chris's most beloved plays. So I think like sometimes it just takes time. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, 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 like a play is sticky enough for people that they just, even though it maybe didn't do well or whatever, that, that, that it, that it sticks around enough that people want to revisit it years later. Um, and then sometimes I think like second productions can be elusive just because of the, like, you know, I'll give you, I'll give another example. Like I wrote this play that was produced at Lincoln center right before the pandemic called greater Clements. Um, and for me, it was like a huge play. It was three hours long, three acts. I, I think it's the only time that I like really let myself write a tragedy. You know, I mean, it's, I think most of my plays operate in this space where like, there's sadness and darkness, but then at the end, there's some sort of like apotheosis or, but, but with this one, I really kind of released myself to go to a really dark place. Um, and we performed it right before the pandemic hit. Uh, and, uh, every, I actually suspect, I mean, everybody was getting sick left and right and understudies were going on all the time. I suspect maybe we already had COVID or something like that. Um, so it was like a really hard process. Um, and, I still wonder if that play is going to be produced again, mostly because I think culturally right now, I don't know if people really want a three hour tragedy. Do you know what I mean? Like, like I, I think over the last, you know, 2020 plus, like, I think we've just kind of been like, we need to see some light here, some light in the darkness. Um, so, and I don't know if that play is going to ever be produced again. And I would love for it to be, because I would love to look at it with a, another fresh pair of eyes, even though it's been published and everything. So, um, I think it's a lot of different factors, you know, and, but, but I also think that, the, that, um, theaters rely too heavily on the sort of imprimatur of a world premiere. Mm-hmm. I don't think that a lot of audiences are like, oh, it's a world premiere. So therefore it's more exciting or better. Like, like it's new to them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's tough. It's really tough. And I think it's especially tough for playwrights who are not New York based just because, um, or, or Chicago, uh, just because those are sort of these fertile grounds for plays and people look to New York, you know, for their seasons and things like that. So, um, I don't know. It's, it's a really complicated question. And I know forward, uh, you do a mix of world premieres and, and, and non-world premieres. Is it half and half or? 
No, I would say we do a world premiere maybe every other season at this point. Oh, okay. Um, we've done, you know, we've done a good handful. We're in our 15th season right now. We've done probably six or seven world premieres at this point. Um, but a lot of the plays that we do, I, you know, maybe haven't been published yet or they haven't had that mm. production. So we've, we've done quite a few second, third, fourth, fifth productions and where do you um, look for like where would you say are your main places that you look for material um i mean honestly it's all over the place it's it's recommendations yeah. um we we try to follow other theaters around the country that do like work minded. similar to the work that we like mm-hmm. so that we can say oh this company over here just debuted a world premiere play um that's brand new let's that sounds good let's get our hands on that script mm-hmm. um uh there's a lot of that that goes into it um but for, you know, so because we're doing all newer plays, um, it, it's obviously exciting when something we do is brand new. Obviously, we like premieres. We like premiering new work. It was part of our sure. starting world premiere of Wisconsin. And birthing something into the world is a, is a great privilege because everything's got to start somewhere. But I feel like I've become more and more conscious, even just over my time running forward, of this crucial need of, of theaters to provide that that second or third production that you're addressing so eloquently where the playwright's really still working on it. And because Mm -hmm. your point of what you learn during the process, what you learn during tech, frankly, once you, what you learn after you've opened and can actually hear it in front of an audience and learn from them and wanting to, to, to incorporate that work and that learning. Um, But even once it's gotten to the point where the playwright is maybe great, I'm ready to, close, close the typewriter on this and, and have it just go out into the world. Unless you're a playwright of a certain stature, getting one of the licensing houses to take it on, to carry it, to Mm -hmm. get it out there. Like you, people want to see a track record and um, it does sort of fall on companies that frequently do newer works where their audience isn't necessarily caring whether they've heard of it before or not. Um, Or frankly, maybe they're like excited that they haven't heard of it before um, to, to do those, um, those productions. I, I, I have to say one sort of evolving trend that I've observed that feels really, it feels fruitful to me. Um, we've participated sort of unofficially in this, um, trend a little bit here, but this idea of the rolling world premiere strikes me as right. a really interesting, um, uh, way to get at this problem. And for those who don't know, it's, there's sort of official rolling world premieres, which are done under the aegis of the National New Play Network. Um, but then there are also just sort of unofficial rolling world premieres where a couple of companies... Oh, I hadn't heard about this. So theaters just yeah. sort of like band together and decide to... Like, yeah. Outside of the scope of NNPN? Yeah. And just oh, say, amazing. we are all going to produce this play over the next, let's say, 18 months. I'm going to do it here and I'm going to do it six months later and I'm going to do it six months after you. And the playwright is going to be part of all three of those productions and actually has that opportunity to know that their play is going to get done again in six months or whatever that time frame is and can really use each of those um, landing points as a, an opportunity to continue tweaking the play, making it to its, yeah. its strongest iteration. Um, it's, it's nice, I think, for playwrights because you, you get that committed opportunity to do that important work. I think it, it, it adds a little of that world premiere shininess that you were alluding to for a company where it is a marketing tool because you say, I'm a rolling world premiere. I'm, you use those words. Um, and for the play itself, it, it builds an automatic track record. So now you've got 
reviews from three communities. You've got audience statistics right. and photographs from three communities. Um, so yeah, this is the sort of official iteration of it is something that the National New Play Network arranges. Um, uh, but I, you know, we when we did the world premiere of Forty Six Plays for America's First Ladies uh, a few years ago, that was under an agreement with the writers and a couple of different theaters that all said, yeah, we're going to mm. all commit to doing this so they can keep, keep working on the script. So that is maybe one um, tool towards addressing the issue. I wonder if there are others the Dramatist Guild is, is promoting. But, but then it still goes back to this, this shininess of world premiere. And our job as theater producers Certainly to, to birth new plays, to get them out. But but what we really want is to get have a, um, a continued life. Just like um, uh, Sam was saying about um, Durang, somebody said, I'm going to give this another life. And right. I think that I love I, I do appreciate the idea of the rolling um, world premiere. Um, I love the idea that a playwright then can grab that and make each one of those premieres, I use in quotes, better. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But but I, I I feel like we're missing, not, not forward necessarily, but sort of regional theater is missing this idea that um, having a second or third or even fourth iteration of a play, you probably get a better play at the end of the day. It's like audiences going to opening night. That's right. That's not usually the very best performance. <laughs> <laughs> and and how do we keep that excitement of the world premiere? But also we're supposed to we're supposed to birth these these plays into, you know, growing up to be adults. How do they become adults? And that I think is the issue right now because we're so focused right now. This industry feels like it's very focused on world premieres. Yeah. Whereas, you know, and the reality is if like, if I feel like from, for somebody like my mom, you know, who is not in the arts, you know, she lives in a small town in North Idaho. She's a very smart person, but isn't a person of the theater. I think she would probably think of plays being in two categories, either like Shakespeare and Chekhov and, and, or more contemporary stuff. And I don't think that there's like this third category of like, brand new world premiere that's that's oh so much <laughs> desirable you know what i mean i think i think it's like it's good and you would know about this better than i but i would imagine it's good from like a grant perspective or something like that or or funding you know what i mean to be like look we launched this brand new play but in, in terms of audiences you know like I've, I've sat in plenty of different rooms and to your point like like if it's a third or fourth production it's probably stronger you know especially yeah. if the playwright has been traveling around working on it. I mean, I traveled around with the first four productions of the whale and, uh, ended up in Chicago at victory gardens. And I, and that's the published versions, the, the, the Chicago version, uh, it's yeah. the strongest version of the script. Um, I also think there's something like on a writing level that writers can sort of like take agency a little bit. Um, there's this, sometimes I like looking to other art forms to sort of see how people deal with it. Cause it's like, for some reason I can see it more clearly when it's not embedded in because my brain is so stuffed full of theater stuff that like sometimes <laughs> hearing art, artists in other disciplines is helpful. Wow. And I listened to this podcast a while back called meet the composer with the wonderful composer, Nico Muley. And he said that, um, one of the way, because there are so many people composing music out there. Do you know what I mean? I mean, like you think there's a lot of playwrights. I mean, like people are writing music and, and I, and I think we're really lucky that, 
in this country, there is, you know, we always say theaters in crisis, theater is dying, but like chamber music, that's like a whole other, <laughs> you know, like, like, uh, that's, that's an even harder world, I think, to make your way. And one of the things he did early on in his, in his career was I sought out musicians who liked playing my music. And I thought, oh, that's so smart because if they like playing it, they're going to keep playing it. And, and it's just going to spread from there. And so I think as writers, like, I think it's worth thinking, like, like writing plays that, that are gratifying to work on. Do you know what I mean? That like, that I, I have this one play that is one of my more produced plays kind of impossibly. It's a play called the permanent image. I wrote it very early on in my career. Um, it's kind of a black comedy and uh, it's got a really good part for like a 60 year old actress and that a lot of jokes and stuff. And it also has this design moment where the entire set is white. Like she's painted everything white and her kids come home for Christmas and they're like, what did you do? And this is giving away the end, but at the very end, I've written in that the space, like a projector fills in all the colors and it's kind of like a flashback, like, like, uh, 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 a scene from before everything had been painted white. And that's just like been a really fun challenge on a design level. And so P and, and on a directorial level. And, and I think for that, even though that play got birthed at Boise contemporary theater, which is not really, you know, like it's a wonderful theater, but it's not like typically a place where people look for play. You know what I mean? Where people are looking for plays and that play has been produced so many times. I actually think it's running in LA right now. Uh, and I think it's just because it's, it's probably fun to do, you know, on, on, on separate levels. So I think like there is, you know, uh, on some level it has to be on us. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, there's institutional problems. I totally agree that like we're too reliant on the world premiere language, but also like we should be writing plays that are, that are, that are, that are I'm not saying fun, but that are like needy and thick and like, and, like have something to them that, that is gratifying to work on. Um, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's so that uh that's so spot on, Sam, and it it makes me think um a couple of things. I mean, I, I obviously I I think of it not just with my director hat on of, you know, the, the the process of working on a new play and whether it's the first or the second or the third production. Um it doesn't really matter what the the big difference maker is whether the playwrights around still yeah, working totally. on it or not. Um but what can we be doing? You know, uh, what can forward do, but also what can the field do um, to help with that? And I, it makes me think of two things. One is I have noticed, you know, so the Schubert Foundation is one of the only granting institutions in the country that gives reliable, um, significant funding to theaters all over the country. Yes. Yeah. Um, they're, you know, the, the great, the great thing when you work in the regional theater is if you get a Schubert grant, you can pretty much count on continuing to get a Schubert grant as long as you don't start really screwing up what you're doing. <laughs> right. Um, right. and that is, and it's a lifeline for sure. And what I have noticed is in recent years, one of the questions has evolved that we fill out and it doesn't just ask, have you premiered any works? It asks, have you done the second, third or fourth production of a play? Oh, interesting. Um, so that, I mean, that right there to your point about our funders more likely, because I do still think a lot of the grants we apply for a lot of the individual donors that we approach, people are maybe more excited if it's that first birthing the baby versus raising the child. <laughs> it's very American. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, so, so the Schubert foundation may be kind of pointing, uh, a way, um, that, that could help in the field. 
for sure. But then what I also struggle with is whether there are things that that the producers could be doing more to help the plays being written that we have premiered. You know, I look back at all of the different world premieres that Forward has worked on, and quite a few of them have not gotten produced elsewhere. Um, and mm-hmm. I mean, and the ones that have have been the ones that where we where we commissioned or worked with a playwright who already had a pretty um, established career mm. nationally. So um, the big agents, the big licensing houses were like, great, happy to have a new play in our, in our catalog. Um, but for playwrights who, whose work we premiered, who didn't have that um, established career already, despite, I know, extensive efforts on their part and introductions made on our part, some, some of those scripts have, that we debuted have never had a second major production. And, and were those, were, is there any correlation between like, were those early plays of playwrights, the ones that didn't get produced again, were they like newish playwrights or does that not really correspond at all? Some yes, some no. Some yeah. Mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and what more uh, can we do? Yeah. It's a really tricky thing too, because, and the other thing that, that's complicated about all this is that just statistically speaking, more plays that don't get multiple productions means more access for new plays. Do you know what I mean? Like, 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 right. which is right. a very complicated thing too. Um, uh, so it's, yeah. So, because I would never say to a theater, no, of course you need to do the 85th production of a bright new Boise instead of that young person's new play. Like I would never, right. never say that, you know what I mean? Um, uh, but, uh, but again, artistically, like one production sometimes just isn't enough to crack a play. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think th- there have been, I, you know, I came out of grad school in like 2008. So it was like right as NNPN was starting, it was before the new play exchange and all that stuff. Um, so I think there is just like more communication mm-hmm. and I have heard of theaters like looking to new play exchange for their seasons, which I think in the early days of new play exchange, it really wasn't like that. It was more like Facebook for playwrights. Um, but that's changed. And so I think there, we are making strides, but again, I think, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I think it's not just institutional. It's not just artistic. It's not just financial. There, there's so many different, you know, um, uh, factors here. You know, I should say that like, I, I think after writing greater Clements, which for me was a gigantic play, it was a two level set, seven characters, three hours. Um, but then after that, I, I, I kind of felt like I kind of burst a vein with that. So after that, I wrote A Case with the Existence of God, which is two guys in a cubicle, you know, and and uh, uh, and then that's kind of where my mind is centered right now. Not not for any industry reasons, but just because I, I'm really interested in just stripping everything away and getting back to the sort of theater as liminal space. Very, you know, like I, I just wrote a play for Steppenwolf that they're going to do in May. Um, and it's just a couch and nothing else like a couch and a void. Um, so, and, and because of that, because case of the existence of God is kind of nimble and quick on its feet like that, it's been produced a lot more than, mm-hmm. uh, than, than a lot of my other plays. And so, and you know, it's hard. I don't want to say you should write plays that are cheap to produce. Mm-hmm. It's not really what I'm saying, but I think, I think like we can get back to, you know, ideas of like the poor theater of like, how can we really embrace like the real essentialness of theater in this time that where money's really tight, you know what I mean? Like, just ask yourself, like, do you need that two level set? Do you need that hundred thousand dollar object, you know, in order to tell the story? Um, 
which I know is me. It, I'm sounding like I'm like be less ambitious, but I'm also I'm actually saying be more ambitious. You know, like 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 embrace the theater, like embrace the like the difficulty of just people in a space relating to one another. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's in in some ways it's more ambitious. You know, rather than sort of like all the bells and whistles that you can think of. You know. I'm so glad you brought up that that point about, um, you know, if you aren't doing multiple productions of the same script, then you're providing more opportunities for playwrights to get their premieres. And that's such a it's such a valuable lens to think about this through. Although it also gets me thinking, because, of course, if a playwright never never gets to those second, third and fourth, then they can't make a living. Exactly. Well, this, right? I mean, so, like, we can't really make a living here. Well, uh, yes, I hear you. But, but <laughs> okay, real, real talk. Real talk. I don't your know. Shot <laughs> at it diminishes because if you if you're get one production out of every play, you're right. That's a bad cost benefit. Yeah, it's, that's not that's not good economics. <laughs> that's not good either. Um, does this topic come up at all in the work you do with the Dramatists Guild? Does this this topic of how to you know, I just joined recently, so um, so my my work with the Drama Guild is still um, less than a year. Um, but uh, I would say the the Drama Guild is much more focused on ad- advocacy and copyright and things like that. I th- I, I think you know, um, sure, like some of the stuff is baked into that, but I, I think it's much more about like supporting playwrights from a maybe a more organic place, if that makes sense, you know, like legal yeah, counsel yes. and, um, you know, uh, which is, you know, the historic function of a guild, you know, yeah. um, you know, I think a lot of people are like, well, what can the dramatist guild do for me? And I'm like, that is not, that's never been what a guild has ever been in the history of guilds. It's not like we're going to do things for you as an advocacy organization, you know, and, and one that, uh, has protected our copyright, which is not something I have in screenwriting. You know what I mean? Like in screenwriting, we have better paying collective bargaining and health insurance, but we don't own anything we write. You know, like uh, like d- when Darren made The Whale, he could have done anything he wanted. You know, he could have set it on the moon. He could have rewritten it entirely, you know? Um, and and he, he didn't, thank goodness. He, he shot a word for a word, but that's kind of a miracle. That doesn't really happen very often. Whereas in the theater, we retain full control of our words. Um, so, so I think that's the kind of like the core of the dramatist guild, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe I'm wading into, um, you know, uncharted waters, but how about relationships with licensing companies? Cause certainly as Jen and I negotiate with different plays, I, um, I've been thrilled with some that say, you should take a look at these five plays, you know, and see what you like and others that, um, I think have um, prevented us from doing plays we really want to do, and we've yeah. moved on. You know, we've we've tried for a couple of years, and now we've moved on. And my inclination is always to get a hold of that playwright and say, "You were prevented from being seen in Madison." Just want to let you know. Right. And um, and I think they're getting better. I found after the pandemic, um, it feels like it's it's being opened up a little bit more but would love to hear how, you know, your feelings about that. And are yeah, they I advocating mean, so, for you in some way? Yeah. Yeah. I, so the only publishing house other than TCG, who does my like trade publications, my like actual book books. Um, but so Sam French, I've only ever been with Sam French now Concord. Um, right. And I, I agree with you. I think they're getting better. I'm, I'm being flagged much more often about like, 
does this conflict with this territory or whatever? And, and it's, you know, it's just this complicated thing, which I understand. I mean, it's good business practice to be like, well, the Goodman is interested in it. So let's hold for a second and not license it to the storefront, you know, cause right. the moment we license it to the storefront and then it just becomes like an economic thing. Yeah. Um, but I, but I will say that like, sometimes I make these assumptions about like which markets overlap where like, you know, even like, is, is like, I don't think something like South coast rep, which is in Santa Ana, I don't really think they, compete really for audiences with like Los Angeles, more central Los Angeles theaters. It's just, that's, that's a really long drive. I mean, it's, you know, hour or two could maybe more. <laughs> like, like, like I think some people are making the trek from Los Angeles to, to Costa Mesa to see plays, but not a ton. And, and, and so I think like Concord is getting better about realizing that like, you know, sometimes they can be a little less restrictive on holding these plays back, you know? Um, but it's tough. And then, you know, if there's like commercial producers interested, that's a whole other layer. Um, so it, it, it gets very complicated very quickly. I don't, um, I don't want that job. <laughs> it sounds like a really hard job, but uh, yeah, I feel for you. I mean, like I've heard from many theaters that have sort of had, had to reach out to me because for whatever reason <clears throat> we have a personal connection and they can reach out to me and they're like, we really want to do it, but they're holding it back. And then I can, you know, start to get involved. So, and that's happened a few times. I will say, I'm, I'm glad you brought up um, Concord, or formerly Sam French. You know, we've had a a really good relationship with them over the years. And several of the shows that we have produced, where I know that we were maybe that third or fourth production where the playwright wasn't coming to town, but they were really actively working to try to build a track record for that script, were plays that um, Teresa, our rep at, at Concord, sent to us and said, Hey, I know your work and I think you might dig this script. I mean, that's why we did the amateurs. That's um, great. That's why we mm -hmm. did Feeding Beatrice. Those were scripts that we found out about because they sent them to us and said, We 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 know what kind of things you like to do, and here's something that is really brand new. And it was gr a great relationship for us because we're seeing these really wonderful scripts um that are being brought to our attention. And I I I think it's been great for the plays as well because we're helping build that that track record that that's um, great it gets them out there i have so. to say like when i was for those of, for listeners maybe not no no sam french was i don't know the right term is i don't know anything about business but like acquired or purchased by concord theatricals like yes maybe three four years ago um pre-pandemic yeah 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 it was pre-pandemic you're right you're right yeah because i'm bit, and i was nervous because like concord's a big company and and i was like is this going to like am i gonna be just like one tiny drop in this huge bucket. But I will say, I think whatever expansion that was, they, they got really, they were already good at what they do, but then they started getting even better. Um, so I've actually been really happy with the shift. I'm glad you guys feel the same way because it feels yeah. better on my end too. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a good, it's been a good relationship and, and yeah, to your point and things, things can get complicated and sometimes for really understandable economic reasons you know if there's a possibility of a commercial production if there's a possibility of one of the biggest lort companies in the country doing your show yeah. you know you don't want to give away a license to the 99 seat storefront that's going to prevent yeah the big lord i mean to, to your earlier point we we need our playwrights to make a living <laughs> yes <laughs> we, we, exactly we i mean it's just you know it's just the reality of it you know yeah. you're, you're gonna make a chunk of change off of the goodman but you're really just not gonna see 
significant money from a storefront. God bless them. I, I, I adore storefront theater. It's like my favorite theater in Chicago. Um, but yeah, it's, and I think it's also like a complicated, you you know, your agent is another level in this. And I think like playwrights can lean heavily on those who have agents can lean heavily on their representation being like, you know, cause sometimes things are just like a little silly. Like Madison does not compete with Chicago. like those are not overlapping markets you know and and so sometimes you have to be like guys 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 you know and and kind of like (laughs) uh sober everybody up a little bit um you know like maybe milwaukee and chicago overlap because they're fairly close but still like i think both of those cities have enough live performance that unless there's a huge draw in chicago like with a starry actor or something like that then I don't think a lot of people are driving from Milwaukee to Chicago to see theater because they've got the rep and they've got, you know, they've got really good theater in their, their hometowns, you know? Right. Um, right. So, but again, I think that's all improving. I, I, I think more conversations are, be ha- are being had, which is a good thing. So. Yeah. Right. What I'm, what I'm sort of taking away from this conversation as, as maybe we start to wind it down a little bit is um, it sounds like the, the trick is, comes down to marketing in a way and on behalf mm. of, from all different angles, right? Like you're, you're talking a lot about um, playwrights and how they represent themselves and what they choose to write to, to choose to write things that are going to be um, exciting for people and, you know, intriguing and interesting for, for producers, but also how can agents and the licensing houses do a better job of reaching out, doing more of what Concord has done for us of saying, here's a new script looking for a second, third, fourth production that might fit you. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and how can, uh, how can theaters like ours who have debuted some works, how can we help those playwrights get those scripts out in front of other artistic directors out in front of, you know, other, other regions um, so w- while not a, um, a conversation that's going to, you know, solve a big, <laughs> a big, um, bump in the road in our, in our field, maybe one that helps reiterate all the good things we can try. Yeah. And I think, look, I, I, you know, look, I'm, I, I'm no longer an emerging playwright, so I, I don't want to speak for, you know, emerging playwrights nowadays, but, but. I do think it just feels like there's improvement. It feels like when I, when I first came into the scene, there was the New York times and there was nothing else. And that has changed that it really has changed. Like, like um, it's still way too centralized with like what the New York times has to say about a play, but, uh, but it's better and it's getting better. Uh, And I think people are like relying on these single sources much less uh, than before, which is a really good thing. And then I think the other solution too, is just like, we need more hyper local theater, you know, just, we we need more companies like forward, you know, like, like, and less of these big, huge $40 million buildings that, that, you know, just try to take whatever the New York times said was good off Broadway that year, you know, um, and, and invest more heavily in like companies that, uh, like yours, that I think also survived the pandemic much easier than these, these huge institutions uh, with, with giant budgets. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, amen. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let us all um, keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Sam, thank you for this conversation. This has been really wonderful. I hope for all of our listeners, you've um, learned as much as I, I feel like I have been. Um, but I think maybe we'll, we'll say that that's it. For this episode. That's great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being yeah, here. Thank you. Always nice to talk to you. Yeah. 
that's it for this episode of Theater Forward, which is a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and America. I'm Jen Uphoff Gray. And I'm Julie Swenson. Our podcast is produced by Scott Hayden. And you can follow us or share your thoughts on Facebook at Theater Forward, as always with an E-R. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to leave a comment. We would love to hear from you. We are very grateful to have you listening and we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.